an awareness or of the potential for information overload too much data so I don't know you know how much in terms of your digestion processing how it's going for you it's getting a bit congested or you need more time or space to chew things over or, or you like anything to help that go down the <laughs> oil or sugar to get it down <laughs> yeah where this material comes alive for me is in the context of helping me to understand what's going on in my head. When it balloons out into Buddhist cosmology, I find it terribly overwhelming. If I just focus on what is helping me, will I be missing out on much? <laughs> I think that's basically what it's about. <laughs> that's the tunnel we start digging down. But you might, as you get down that, dig into that, what's good for me, you might find some interesting discoveries as the thing starts to open up and you think, oh, <laughs> like this means, uh, yeah, inside my head. Mm-hmm. But then as you start moving through that, it also means how I relate to other people, uh, how I relate to other creatures, suddenly it starts to fan out a bit. <laughs> And then how I acknowledge my tendencies and my biases, and then starts to open up a bit. Yeah. So that's definitely the best way to go. I think the Deva Loka is optional. <laughs> you can get through your life without ever contacting a single Deva, and you'd be all right. Yeah. I really value your teaching that it all comes back to clinging. And I can see after I realize my over-intellectualization about all this, and I see I really know that it's true. And I just feel really free. Oh, clinging. I can get over that. Well, it was worth the trip. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of like the Buddha often did that. You look at the Buddhist discourses, they often do that. It goes this incredible array of stuff. You think, gee, wow, wow, wow. And he says, but really what you need to do is learn to let go. <laughs> I've just shown you the possibilities of every place you can hang out in, just in case you get stuck in that level. Like, you know. <laughs> yeah. When you were talking this morning about Vedana, it seemed like the main focus was the realizing that can happen after the Vedana has arisen and clinging is arising. Yesterday you mentioned a shift that can be sensed before the tone of pleasant or unpleasant actually arises. That really intrigued me. It seemed to me that the shift that is now going to be categorized as something pleasant or unpleasant, that shift is a movement and also then a sankara, right? It seems that along with that, there has to be a subtle intention or volition to categorizing something as pleasant or unpleasant. And this seems really important. Can you say anything more about the shift before the Vedana quality actually appears? Well, Chaitanya volition is quite a significant feature of Sankara, but it's not the only one. So if we look at this, Pasa contact is also Sankara, which is that very you know, shift that happens when an impingement occurs. That's called contact. So that being impressed upon is the so that's that is that's where formulation begins. And to be impressed upon, as I think you're talking about, there has to have been attention, otherwise you're not Impressed, and along with that, there's a subtle intention that's formulated the attention. So, all that's going on. Did you make mention today that they're all related and can't be separated? It seems so interwoven. I guess it's a tangled skein. It's a tangled skein, and uh, so, yeah, you see, um, Generally, of course, Sankara is bound up with the others. Mm. 
one contacts the deathless in one's own body. So that's right. That's a kind of that's called contact. So it's not bound up with perception, feeling, consciousness. So that aspect of sankhara is certainly you could say the impression of release is an impression. What is contact as as an experience, what's happening, energy is rolling along a certain way and something interrupts it. That's called contact. So if we're walking downstairs, we don't really, you know, walking downstairs, we're in this flow of walking downstairs and suddenly you stub your toe. That interrupts the sense of the flow. When you're walking downstairs, technically you're, you're touching the ground, but actually in terms of your chitta, you're not being contacted by it. You know, you're probably thinking about where you're going. So then contact interrupts the flow. So that's the, that's the resistance of it. Impingement impression. You know, we recognise we're always in flow, mind stream, <coughs> energy stream. Uh, that's always in flow. So something. What's that? You know, consciousness is flowing along <coughs> in a certain direction. Something interrupts its stream. That way, that's called contact. That's it. So that's the that impingement means that's the beginning of an activation. In terms of Vedana, a very interesting, well, personally speaking, probably not everybody, recognition of um, other possibilities of Vedana. So this is Sangyuta Nikaya 45.11, it's number 17. This is another screed of words which could be a bit of a uncomfortable experience because <laughs> he goes through these they go through this possibility and that possibility and this possibility and that possibility and neither this possibility this is the Indian logic system yeah. occasionally the Buddha was reported to at time to time said I need a break I'm going on retreat I'm going to go back experience Nibbana again I'm going to go back into that experience so he wasn't in Nibbana all the time it was the experience he had he come out of having released clinging but then he's back into the functioning mode aggregates functioning but no glue right. so he's obviously thinks he needs a break so he goes and goes to retreat and it says okay now he comes out and says I've been dwelling in that, that, that experience I had and having done so I began to contemplate this feeling with wrong view as a condition. Wrong view gives rise to feeling. Mm-hmm. Feeling with right view as a condition. What kind of feeling do you get with right view? It's quite subtle, isn't it? It goes along, along to subtle and subtle levels. When desire has subsided and thought has subsided, and perception has subsided there's also a feeling so there's no desire there's no thought there's no perception or it's subsided there's still some kind of feeling based upon what? so then there is the effort for the attainment of the unyet attained so in other words, still some kind of motivation to, to full realisation. And when that stage of full realisation has been reached, there's also a feeling. I thought we were trying to get out of all this stuff. <laughs> so you get feeling as this energetic shift. So I would imagine it's the like, you know, walking down the street and coming to open space. 
the absence of pressure the absence feels like a shift from congestion into openness so that is still registered the absence and in in, um, (laughs) another interesting uh, context I think it was uh, one of the the Arahants Sariputta saying you know uh, with feelings like this and the other and the, when feeling subsides that feels really good Nibbana <laughs> 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 is the highest most supreme kind of ease so that's, that's a reference to feeling isn't it and so what is it we can conjecture of course but I'm just sensing the qualities of pleasure pain this level of pretty much reduced to just the sense of something that was entangled getting released, something that was congested getting unblocked something slightly opaque becoming clear, just that shift and that is still the shift is still happening so that maybe that helps us to um, get a fuller Recognition. We're not looking at annihilating these things, but there's a transmutation can occur from them being problems to them being servants and even markers, markers of the path. And definitely, these aggregates are used in terms of cultivation. They're used as agents for cultivation and signs of knowledge. I'm feeling happy, that's good. Not, oh, happiness, don't get attached to happiness. <laughs> you know, uh, which can be a kind of one of these ab- Buddhist absolutist views. Yeah. You mentioned that it was helpful to point the citta towards the kaya sankara rather than the vaji sankara. Is that what allows the development of equanimity? Loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. And heart qualities start to become potent um, through through taming the vajji sankara. Because vajji sankara abstracts, creates abstractions. You see, so uh, you know, then heart establishes felt relationship. Mm-hmm. So if the heart is turning towards the, the world of abstractions, it get, its, its emotional energies get into a sense of urgency, uh, not to do, um, you know, it gets emotionally stirred by abstractions. Which abstractions can't respond. They're abstractions. The spreadsheet never says thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we put a lot of heart in, you know, we can get very stirred by them, but they don't pay anything back immediately. So this, when we move into body, you're moving into an animate experience, not abstraction. So certain qualities or certain benefits, uh, the Kaisenkara will respond. If you approach or enter that realm, Gently, receptively, the Kaya Sankara will, will warm and open. If you start pushing it around, it will tighten. So it trains, it trains the jitta. So it's, um, you know, and if one enters it with that kind of whole, steady, patient, soothing attitude, the Kaya Sankara will, will radiate and vibrate and be luminous. And so you get you get feedback, positive feedback, and, and that so the energy because it's, it's a transference of energy. Heart energy is transferring into body energy. Body energy is then feeding it back. So you get this feedback loop of of energy, uh, which which can be so that can be incredibly fortifying and nourishing for the system, which is often quite depleted in terms of that vitality because they never get any payback from the abstractions. See what I mean?
Now, naturally, this means that in that when that in that heart when that quality that heart is properly fortified, then I think you know it, it, it sort of it's quite natural that it, that it moves towards goodwill because what else is there? What other energy from a whole? healthy, balanced point of view, what other energy would be appropriate, would happen in terms of our relationship to conditions? Bitterness? No. (laughs) Aversion? No. It's going to be some kind of goodwill which can take these different forms. It's just a basic willingness and openness of heart, non-aversion, non-resistance, that's metta. Meeting the saddened or the broken with a sense of Ooh, you know, compassion and uh, enjoying that which is good and also as you said just equanimity okay conditions are like this they're going up and down right things will change stay steady so those resources become available when the chitta is properly established and replenished and the body can do that and of course, if we have, we do have those qualities, goodwill and so forth, so if we bring that energy into our body, the body's going to appreciate it, and so it's a feedback loop. Another person asks, I think I'm confused, are the heart and the chitta two different things? No. The heart is just an approximate term, but it, it kind of starts you in the right place the most available place, most accessible place. Uh, you see, by and large, jitter is translated as mind. <coughs> and that tends to place us in a, another, another area, the level of abstraction and cognition. Uh, and uh, then this teaching doesn't work. Because that release doesn't occur there. <laughs> You can't think your way out of out of this mess, out of samsara. You can't psychologize it. You've got to feel it. Feel where you, when you can feel clinging. You can feel craving. You can feel it happening in your heart. Your heart, and you can feel how uncomfortable it is. So you want to, you want to awaken that intelligence. Right? So there's different another word for mind that's used is manas. And so this is the manas is the um, also called manovinyana, mind consciousness or manas mind. So that is another term that's used for mind. That does refer to the sense organ that forms cognitive perceptions, you know, symbols and concepts. Manas forms those. And clearly the two are not entirely separate. There's a a strong connection between the two because jitta doesn't have very specific, um, detailed orientation in the sense world. So it gets a sense of, you know, feeling sort of, feeling sort of... uh, you know, I feel I can't, I can't, I feel I need something, I need something. So, so it goes to manners. Hey, I need something. So manners thinks, oh, come on. Well, go and get you a burger. You know, so it goes and gets a burger. No, that wasn't what I needed. Okay, well, how about a movie? <laughs> no, that wasn't it either. Well, give me a clue. I just feel something, well, something that's kind of, I don't know, comfortable and resolute and steady and stable. And manners goes, Beats me. I've never found one of those. <laughs> you better look in yourself. <laughs> About the taints, Asava, is this a linear sequence? Because I've been dealing with this conditioning the last few years and I identify that I'm out of enchantment with it. So I was wondering if the next step is dispassion and then I'd reach liberation. <laughs> 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 
Yeah, there's a, a section there which says, you know, what reviews the tanks or something, there's releasing the tanks, Asava. Um, yeah, through, through insight, through deep wisdom. Uh, and uh, yeah, easier said than done. Why not? <laughs> I finished for a while. And I just was like, when I saw that thing, do you know the way that it, it's going down that way, but it's actually going up that way? Then I thought, maybe I'm just two steps away from the creation with this particular thing that I'm dealing with. Like, <laughs> do you know? Yeah. that very naive? Because. You know, we look at a, like, we take the image of the asava being like a vortex, a swirling vortex. Now that, that doesn't stand, it's often carrying all kinds of images and impressions in it. You know, like, who I should be, what other people think of me, da 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 da, da you know, this kind of stuff. So it's carrying a lot of stuff in that swirl. So often we get lost in that, in the details. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, because all those details are very dynamic and keep forming our world, so we get lost in that, trying to deal with that. So to actually to see an asava as it is takes quite a bit of cleansing and clarifying to actually, you know, get to that um, sensing that turbulence by you know, in a way that's dispassionate and not involved with the details of what it's throwing around. So so it's it's a kind of uh, reference to insight into the aggregates so how is it the one that can be a regarding of of consciousness how do you get how do you get to be able to regard consciousness what does it take to uh, see okay let's take an example to see mental consciousness just as mental consciousness and not as this is my mind this is me not just to, to feel it that way, but be totally dispassionate to the experience of mental consciousness. What does it take? Bit of work, huh? What do you think? Since that mental consciousness, by and large, seems to be what I am, where do I get, where do I get out of that to review it? How, what, 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 how can I get an angle on it? Because I'm in it. Yeah. I am it. So that takes quite a lot of discharging of, of clinging and emotional dependence and identification. So that process of de-clinging, de-identifying culminates in that, that possibility. Where does that process of non-clinging, de-identification begin? With faith. And faith now, faith first of all as we contemplate that, it starts to generate from that seed of faith is, is a condition that supports the arising of gladness. How does that happen? When I feel or have faith, I feel inspired. Yes. I'm inspired. But I don't have faith, life is pretty depressing. Right. So I have confidence. It could be a better. Some um, little bit of uplift there. That's gladness. You focus on the gladness and, and steep yourself in it, and sort of operate in line with your inspiration. Operate in line with your, the kind of qualities you hold dear in that inspired state. You also don't get lost in the in the in the dazzle of it. You know. Gladness. So gladness causes this kind of actually starts to lift your spirits. So you get piti, it's a lifted state. So essentially, what we're looking at, and there's samadhi, then it's spoken called samadhi. So we're looking at the sequence whereby you can't just say, okay, stop clinging, stop it, it's bad for you. <laughs> so let's put that topic aside. Let's actually find a counterweight. Yeah. So the jitter, instead of going to these things and clinging to those, says, well, I can, I can stay with this instead. So you could say that's an alternative form of clinging. I can kind of get oriented around and dwell in this samadhi experience rather than dwell in this kind of distracted streams of consciousness. You know? So it's a kind of unified 
refined kind of consciousness. So that's a kind of uh, kind of like a, a midway point, because then we've used some degree of of desire and feeling and connecting to feeling and enjoying feeling, but it's feeling associated not so much with you know self or sense pleasures, but feeling associated with energies, you know, bright energies of the heart. That's a better place to hang out to than in da 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 da. So we substitute. And a substitute because this will actually provide the kind of resources that are necessary for the jitta to be able to f- feel firm enough and fed enough and nourished enough to be able to stand against the tide that the asavas bring up. So, you know, if we have a vortex and we're able to you know, put, put, break the, cir- the spinning circle with something that's, that's still, the vortex dissolves. So here, the, the, and then of course, with that, you know, then in fact the sense of, you know, samadhi has done its work. We've been able to interrupt the helter-skelter movement of consciousness, which is scrambling from this to that. We've been able to, to change that or, or check that and find there's a sort of still place, a still place where the heart can dwell. And from that place, from that heart state, it's possible then to review. You know, um, this is perception, does this, feeling does this. Um, Sankaras do that. Uh, consciousness is this. What's the, what's, you know, enough? And so samadhi is uh, considered to be uh, an asset for insight. Uh, support for insight. Insight's the liberator. But support, samadhi gets the mind fit enough to properly do insight. And that's that's the classical line. You know. Now some people say you don't need samadhi or whatever you get stuck in samadhi or some people say people say all kinds of things. But we're looking actually what the Buddha said and this is as close as we're going to get. And he certainly valued uh, he may be able to do it without it perhaps or some degree but Basically, he's saying samadhi is a factor of the eightfold path. This is this is a steady, reliable factor that leads to liberation. Like you don't cling to it. Isn't part of the beauty of what you've done with samadhi, as well, is that to enter samadhi you've experienced non-fabrication of the five hindrances, so you're not bringing up those sankharas and presumably have a lot of experience with releasing them as you're developing the samadhi. So that's a kind of insight aspect to the whole process. It's an insight, yeah. It's it's the insight. Because you see, again, it's not even the state of samadhi is significant, but how how that gets cultivated. You have to do quite a lot of fine work on your chitin and your volition and your perceptions to actually, you know, get in there and get the right kind of volition, intention to to stabilise rather than push or force or control or distract it's, so these two, all this stuff it's a very thorough workout you know, attention, intention uh, contact, impressions, feeling, perception it will get very thoroughly overhauled and um, so, that if the, so that you don't get this almost um, you know, I don't think we want it will it just suddenly runs that way <laughs> you know, nobody likes it but it just shoots out because the intention is not mastered that just bursts out into these unskillful, unskillful directions. So it has to be mastered. You know, and that's what—that's the process that's required to fully you know, cultivate samadhi. So that's a very strong purification of those of these kundas. You know, and so they purify the kundas, and then you can review. Okay, this is the kunda. So this. They rise, they pass, they change, 
so there's that dispassion and, re- and release. When I practice the jhanas, I find I get to a certain point where I start to come more into the body and get more energized. I find at this point I can't get further into calmness. I'm just wondering when the energies of excitement are more embodied, is that where the khandhas are actually getting activated? If that's the case, is that where I should start to investigate? They're getting unbalanced. So if, if in cultivating or a movement towards jhana, you find yourself getting stuck in places where you get over-energized, over-fizzy, this means the quality of pity has not been mastered. Yeah. It's, running, it's running away from you. It means it's not properly contained. Um, uh, yeah, and this is so, you know, this is not, not that uncommon. I mean, some people never get any pity anyway, but it <laughs> doesn't always work. But if that's, that's coming up for you, then the emphasis has to be how to sort of steady that energy. And kind of things that will help to steady is first of all to widen the focus and to relax the intention. It's the jetana, the intention gets a bit excited by the piti. This is not a choice, it's just a reaction. (coughs) See what I mean? It's not a choice, it's a reaction. It's like the shiver. We don't decide to shiver, we just shiver. Because it's cold. Similarly, when you get pity, the jitta starts to shiver. And you get kind of excited. (laughs) Because this is frisky energy. It feels good. So then that probably goes on, can go on for a while. Um... And then one begins to think, hey, this isn't so good after all. Because <laughs> I, you know, I just fizz. <laughs> Reborn as a lemonade if I keep going on that. <laughs> so there could be a sense of, mm, wait a minute. And so then we want the sort of like uh, emotional disengagement, like, well, so what? It's just that, it's just energy moving. And then widening, widening the the attention, so we don't get too engrossed, distance yourself from it. Uh, uh, then pity generally comes in waves. It's kind of fizzing waves of it. So you get wave. So you get peaks, and it comes in waves. Now, if we can kind of contemplate the downside of the wave, so we get the fizzing, and then then again contemplating with the, the sense of that when it subsides momentarily before it picks up again give attention to that mm. um, and if another tip is just to try to really um, again refer to the body not uh, you know, we, we, we're sensing the body energy but are we kind of um, hmm, do we lose contact with the, the, the anatomy now if we look into the process where the person has experienced the first jhana and it says there's not one part of one's body not one pore of the skin is not suffused and penetrated by this piti. Right? So this is definitely referring to the, the meat, you know. Now, when piti becomes over-emotional, over-excited, then we lose some of the physicality. So try to sort of sense like you're spreading piti into my shoulders. And how wide does this go? And what, what about my hips? And what about my throat? And what about my back? And what about my legs? So you just even you don't necessarily have to feel them, but you're getting, trying to get the energy to spread rather than escalate. Yeah. So you're spreading it, and you're spreading it into something like an earth wire that will ground it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the body acts like a like an earth wire or a lightning conductor that will help to ground that energy. And then it can be 
soothed, you get sukha, is more like the soothed, contented quality that comes in. Oh, pretty good. But not fizzy. Yes, that's it. I have a resistance to being grounded. It seems I prefer the fizzy state. (laughs) (laughs) Uh Uh Interesting. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. (laughs) I wonder what grounded means. It's not nailed down. It's pleasantly, it's like a tree putting its roots into the ground. It's it's, It's connected. Fully connected to the earth element. You know, it's, um, as I must um, say again, it's a mutual undivided cosmos experience. And the strong tendency to divide, to separate. So there's a kind of the me bit. So the strong tendencies are, that encourage her to, to include you know, to suffuse, so we say suffusing the entire world which is not planet but the entire scope of one's consciousness with these qualities this is where of course this uh, movement part movement towards the um, Meta Karuna Mutitu Peka is a very helpful uh, conduit a channel because then you know that does very much spread over the uh, whole, whole world and both of these forms samadhi form which we and the brahmavihara form which is the metta karuna yeah, they, they're very similar they're both called aspects of what's called the maha chitta the great chitta the chitta properly expanded not constricted, not distracted, but properly expanded. It can be expanded either through samadhi or through metta. And the energy within it is called suffusive rather than directive. Such as like a steam, you know, suffusing. So that, that kind of energy then so if energy is driving or flaring or bubbling, it's not the right energy. What energy to be like mist? That suffuses. <laughs> hmm? right. And as I said, the phrase entering, now you enter samadhi, which means you come into a place and how, well, let's scope out how big, how wide is this room? How tall is it? Let's get the territory. See, wide as you enter into it. You come in, into a door which is quite narrow. Yeah, coming through a narrow door and then you start to widen. So the energy, fruitful, healthy energy starts to suffuse. And the first aspect in the suffuse is the body. Same thing with the Metta Karuna. Dhrupeka, these are called Brahma Vihara. Vihara is a dwelling place, or often associated with a monastic dwelling, is called a Vihara. So it's a useful piece of language. Brahma means non-sensual, sublime. Uh, so it means it's, it's a location you enter. You enter a domain of goodwill. So in this there's no sense of me, you, which is often the way it's sometimes practiced, I send some goodwill to you. Uh, Send you some goodwill, so come on, what about (laughs) cheering up or looking good or something or the other? No, it's not quite like that. The fruition of metta is called the sphere of the beautiful. So the quality of metta suffuses one's experience. But it's seen, heard, remembered, touched whatever suffuses it with a sense of uh, kindness, non-resistance gladness so it's a suffusive so that can be your memories um, 
other people, could be any items that you want to bring into your vihara, your Brahma vihara. And it's called the sphere of the beautiful. You see the beautiful. You sense the beautiful. You sense the admirable. You sense the lovable. Mm-hmm. And the cultivation is you sense the lovable in all things. That's that takes a little bit of doing. <laughs> Yeah, but that's of course that's the Olympic standard we're looking at you know. <laughs> if you're doing that that's the Deva Loka you know we tend to we often imagine Devas are like fairies or elves or something on some other plane but actually um, interestingly enough right speech is called a Deva right speech is a Deva Means it's a, it's a beautiful energy that, that is manifesting. So we see these cosmology much more in terms of energies. Then we can we can produce the deva loka, uh, you know, as as the sphere of goodwill, benevolence, and uh, lifted spirit. So then becomes actually less cosmology, more more to do with heart psychologies. And that's a helpful way of, um, you know, reframing what this sometimes <laughs> quirky cosmology seems to be about. Um, you know, people of great heart are sometimes called devas. Like we say, oh, she's really an angel. She's such an angel. Where's her wing? No, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) What are you looking at? You know, kindly, compassionate, tolerant, benevolent. She's an angel. So in Buddhism we say she's a deva. (laughs) Or or he's a deva. Uh, Because the spirit, nature of spirit, nature of heart then becomes spirit. So then the word spirit is more applicable perhaps. You brought up the idea of beauty a couple of times in relation to signs. I don't hear this much, and I'm curious. In relating to signs and to being able to set signs aside, what role does beauty play in the Dhamma? (laughs) Sopana. Sopana. Well... I think the the um, it's a spiritual beauty, beauty of spirit, beauty of heart, the coarseness, the grossness, the abusiveness, the abrasiveness, the crankiness has been smoothed out. The heart is beautiful, and so these kind of contorted or uh, depressive states have been cleared. The heart is not gloomy; it's bright, it's radiant. Therefore, it is beautiful. Yeah. Make sense? That makes sense. You didn't use those as examples yesterday. Though. You used an example of a painting and a tree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How does that relate? <laughs> as, as well, that's external process. Yeah. Well, that, that's that's referring to a sense object. So we can also see beauty in that. That that sign, that perception, can arise around that. Uh, and perception can arise around certain mental states such as loving kindness can, the perception can be this is beautiful it's a perception uh, and perceptions play a very significant role in practice they are part of the kit that we have and so we you know, the quality of beauty is not so much that it's attractive but if it leads to the elimination of abusive, coarse, greedy states, it's beautiful and skillful. The most important thing is it's skillful. The sweetener is it's beautiful. The honey on the medicine. <laughs> it leads to the elimination of destructive, afflictive tendencies. 
could it mean that it reduces the energy in unhelpful sankharas? Yeah, they have to go somewhere. You can't switch, you can't just say, let there be no energy. Well, as long as we're alive, it's going to be moving. So let's get it moving in the right direction. And so when it moves in the right direction, it starts to feel pleasant in a non-sensual way, in a non-greedy way, in a non-consuming way. It doesn't burn anything up, it doesn't cost anything. So that's much better than you ravaging the planet with it. <laughs> right? And uh, the fact that it's also agreeable means, we, yeah, we want to do more of it. It's agreeable and skillful. Um, so this word beauty, it certainly it's, um, it's an ambivalence in the Buddhist terminology because if we so, for example, the, the cultivation of the unbeautiful is also recommended. And, and it's said, if you, seeing the beauty in what is not beautiful is a, is a distortion. Mm. So, if we see beauty in, um, in depraved experiences, for example, or beauty in pornography, or beauty in, um, you know, da 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 da, then it's not actually beautiful. We're, but we're, we're implanting something on it. So, for example, the problem seeing beauty as, as, as an aspect of human form, human body, is problematic. Human bodies are just this, aren't they? You know? And the most important thing about them is not that they're beautiful or not, it's where they function properly. <laughs> Because the beauty of the body is for somebody else. It's not. I don't get anything out of it. Right. So, intimately, what concerns me is not how beautiful this thing is, but the fact the heart works, the liver's doing its job. Liver's not very beautiful at all. You need to put them out on the table. Nobody's going to get excited about it. <laughs> but thank goodness they're there. Um, so, so if you're looking at body as a source of beauty, you're missing the main point. You're actually getting distracted. And what does that feed upon? What does that bring up? You want a sexual desire, or want to acquire that? You want to grab it? You want to, and then the, then problems start. Or vanity? How beautiful am I? You know, cosmetics make myself more. I'm not beautiful. Get some implants. You know, get some surgery. Have a whatever. You know, kind of craziness that goes on trying to make a body beautiful. And generally, you know, the problem is that people look pretty nice to me still don't think they're very beautiful. They all look nice to me. (laughs) (laughs) But then you can can refine this sense of designing a body. So you get the model, which actually doesn't exist. And take a photograph of somebody, then, then do the Photoshop to shape it up a bit. This doesn't actually exist. And that, that's the thing we're seeing as, as the gold standard, a fantasy. And then people are judging themselves in accordance with, I'm not a fantasy. You know, so that's the madness of beauty, if it goes, if it goes in the wrong place. Because it's giving rise to unskillful states. Yeah, so, but uh, beauty is a sense of a luminosity which we can derive, we can derive luminosity, say from, you know, work of art, you get a sense of something really has a, has a, a luminous effect on the jitta that we light up. Now, if that, that is occurring because of skillful states, all well and good. If we find beauty, luminosity, a luster, a radiance in cultivating harmlessness, generosity, honesty, that's all well and good. In fact, it attracts us to, to cultivate more of it. Now, it's still only a sign. But in, in this whole array, you know, if you have a really radical view of the Dhammas, there's nothing fundamentally nothing fundamentally solid about anything. So we're dealing with conjuring tricks. It's all conjuring. But some conjuring is better than others. Because it leads 
out of the entanglement and the obsessiveness and the uh, addi- and the uh, fruitless desire. That's what I was thinking of. With the example of a tree, there might be a time when I'm experiencing an upset and I would just put myself in front of a tree and the experience of viewing and considering the tree gives time for a process of calming the heart and the dissolution of unhelpful energies, the capacity to identify with something wholesome and helpful. And what sign do you derive from it? Now, so it's, it's a good thing, okay, I find it sometimes useful. I look at a tree and I think, what, what is it saying to me? It's saying to me something like strength. It's saying something like, you know, sheltering everything. It's saying things like enduring, strength, connected to the earth, sheltering all creatures, uh, bringing forth life. It says that. So I get those signs and think, that's really beautiful. I wish I could be a tree. <laughs> you see it as lumber. Right? So there's different signs, isn't it? But that sign, even though that may be just my rejection, it means I'm going to be respectful to that tree. <laughs> so it's a valuable sign. I'm going to respect it. So if it produces a skillful state, we'll, we'll go with it. Mm-hmm. Another word that's sometimes translated as beautiful is kalyana. And so the phrase is, the Dhamma is kalyana in the beginning, kalyana in the middle, kalyana in the end, or in its fruition. So this again is sometimes translated as beautiful. Dhamma is beautiful in the beginning, beautiful in the middle, beautiful in the end, mm-hmm. beautiful in its fruition. And it's that opening of faith to, to a path of purity that's a beautiful sign. The ongoing cultivation, the sense that this is actually working for me, it's giving me, there's a, definitely a track I can follow that's meaningful, that's beautiful. The arrival at cleansing and liberation, that's also beautiful. So sometimes that word kalyana, and of course the other word where we see it's kalyanamita, the beautiful friend admirable, the friend who models nobility, clarity compassion you know, that, that's beautiful too so I think we'll uh, enter the silence for, for an hour or two